Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What is good, everybody? Welcome back to episode number 110, 110 of Murph's Boston Sports Talk. I am your host, James Murphy, a.k.a. Murph, and thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Today's Friday, and we have a lot to talk about in regards to the world of sports. Football, Bruins, Celtics, Red Sox, and Major League Baseball in general. I will preface... I'm going to save my Patriots chatter for Monday's episode where I will go over the Patriots-Bills matchup, the three things I'm looking forward to in that game. I'm going to do all that on Monday's episode due to the fact that the Patriots are playing on Monday Night Football instead of Sunday. If they were playing on Sunday, Sunday Night Football, whatever, I would talk about them today. But with them playing on Monday, I figured we would save that discussion for Monday because we do have a lot to go over in today's episode but before we get into anything before we get into absolutely anything there is a serious serious debate going on here at the shop between myself and customers and that is your thoughts on Christmas music people love it people hate it I personally love it Come December 1st, every year, bang, in the radio, Christmas music. 
Now, I know some places, restaurants, malls, and any really public area, they'll start playing Christmas music on November 1st. That's way too early. Way, way, way too early. If you want to play it after Thanksgiving, the day after, fine. But you're not going to find me playing it until December 1st. And obviously, now that we're sitting here on December 3rd, I've been listening to it for three straight days. I absolutely love it. It helps you get into spirit, into the swing of things. But some people, and I respect them for this, just flat out hate it. They just absolutely hate it. And you know what? I'm not going to tell you that your opinion is wrong because I am a firm believer that no one's opinion is wrong unless you're trying to tell me that Mac Jones sucks because he clearly doesn't. But besides that, if you don't like Christmas music, you don't like Christmas music. But it's always fun to chat about because there's going to be people that love it, don't care for it, and hate it. And me personally, I think it's just a great little you know, added bonus to help you get into the swing of things. Because when you think of Christmas and the holidays, you think of cold weather, gifts, and like snow. Well, there's no snow right now. And I don't think we've had snow on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve for that matter in a handful of years. So it's like we need to get into the swing of things a little bit more. And I think Christmas music is a great avenue for that. But like I said, that's just my opinion. I don't want to go too much into it because some people may not even celebrate Christmas. Some people may not even like Christmas. So I'm just going to end it there. But I do want to hear your thoughts, whether in the comment section below here on YouTube or reaching out to me at social media at Merce Cardtown. What are your thoughts on Christmas music? Do you like it? Do you love it? Or do you not care for it? But let's get into today's topic. And I want to start with football. Let's kind of run through the slated games here for week 13. And then we'll get into more Boston-based topics. Cowboys defeated the Saints last night, 27-17. It was an interesting game. Cowboys looked like they were going to blow them out towards like third quarter, actually into the third quarter. It looked like they were just going to blow them out. Saints came back a little bit, but obviously it was a large 10-point loss. Like It wasn't a close 10-point game. It was a large 10-point game. It was one of those. I started Amari Cooper in fantasy. Didn't really pan out for me. Got like five and change points. Not what I need. And I sat Greg Zerline this week in fantasy because I want to drop him for Harrison Butker. And Zerline got 12 points in fantasy this week, which is like the first time he's gone double digits in a little bit. So hindsight is always 20-20. But obviously I wish I started him because the 12 points is a nice little give me. But I didn't really want to start two Cowboys players. It is what it is. Hopefully I can pick up Harrison Butker still. And hopefully we can start him and he gets at least 12 points, maybe more. That's what I'm going to talk about in terms of Thursday Night Football. It was a good game, but since the Saints don't have Jameis Winston anymore, it's just like the Saints are mediocre. They really are. Alvin Kamara's out. Michael Thomas is out for the season. Obviously, they don't have Drew Brees no more. That Saints team is super mediocre, and they're a team that had a lot of promise and potential, too, at the beginning of the year. But now that they're sitting, where is the South? At 5-7, and seven, you can kiss that season goodbye. They really needed that win. Cowboys needed that win as well, and they were able to get it. So congratulations to them. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe that is not the last Thursday night game of the year. Nope, we have next week. Oh, I thought that was the last Thursday night game. Okay, no, so week 15 is the last Thursday night game of the year. Because with college football coming to a close, Saturday is going to open up, and usually NFL pushes their games to Saturday, but that's not until later in the year. 
Week 13, Colts versus Texans. I'm going to give that one to the Colts. I think that's a easy choice right there. Colts are hot right now. Vikings and Lions. Vikings are very hot right now themselves. Lions are atrocious. I'm kind of shooting for a 0-16-1 campaign for them. They didn't go completely... Um, they didn't go the whole season without... Oh, what am I trying to say? They didn't go the whole season with just losing as they had one tie, but they still went 0-16, which in years past, that is a full regular season. It's just a little ha-ha. Obviously, I don't want to see you know the Lions tank forever, but this is kind of something I'm rooting for at this point. So I'm going to be picking the Vikings over the Lions. Giants, Dolphins in Miami. Dolphins are on a four-game winning streak, I believe it is. They are kind of coming into the thick of things here in the AFC conference do they have enough juice in them obviously they're in a nice little soft spot of their schedule I think this is a great game for them to win and just pull even closer and closer to a potential playoff spot I don't see them getting a playoff wildcard berth but they absolutely could if they play their cards right and they just keep going out there winning games Tua looking good Jalen Waddles looking good so hey represent Alabama Buccaneers visit the Atlanta Falcons, and Buccaneers really need a good blowout win here. I mean, they've been in some good games past couple weeks. They've been really competitive. Offense looks good. Defense has kind of slacked a little bit. I'd like to see the Buccaneers really win by like three scores, and I think they can do that in this game because that Falcons defense is atrocious. That Falcons offense is very, very inconsistent especially without Calvin Ridley, so I'm giving it to the Buccaneers here. Eagles and Jets. I picked the Eagles last week to beat the New York Giants. It didn't work out. I'm still going to pick them to beat the New York Jets because New York Jets and Zach Wilson are straight garbo. Cardinals visiting the Bears. Sneaky, sneaky big game for the Cardinals because the Cardinals need to start picking up wins because they don't want to lose their number one seed. They've been out of the playoffs for a handful of seasons now. You started off, what, 8-0, 7-0, whatever the hell it was. And if you can lock up that number one seed and avoid a wild card weekend, that'd be a huge win for them so they can just go straight to the divisional game and play whoever gets beaten up and, you know, battled in the wild card round instead of you having to do that and play in the wild card round. So sneaky big game for them here. Obviously, this game's in Chicago. If Justin Fields is healthy, which I believe signs are pointing for him to be healthy, he will be the starter. And at this point, the Bears are kind of still in the hunt, technically. And the Bears are fighting for something as well. But this could be a sneaky uh, big game for the Cardinals here. So I'm going to pick the Cardinals. But just keep an eye on that score. I, just, I won't be surprised if the Cardinals blow them out and win. But just keep an eye on it. Chargers, Bengals. Big game here. This might be. This might be. Uh, I don't want, no, the second game of the week, right? I think the Patriots-Bills is the game of the week here. But Chargers-Bengals, that's a big matchup. Big, big matchup. Big playoff implications on the line for both teams. Chargers need to win to get themselves closer to the Chiefs. Bengals need to win to get themselves closer to the Ravens. Both teams are currently sitting in wildcard spots. You don't want to lose, and then you get bounced out, and now you have to fight your way back in. Games in Cincinnati, so that obviously favors the Bengals. Oh, man, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I want to pick 
Oh, man. Joe Mixon's been on an absolute tear. Chargers offense has cooled off a little bit. Bengals passing has cooled off, too. I'm going to go Bengals. I just feel like they're more of a sound team. I won't be surprised if the Chargers win, and I'm not going to say they can't win. But obviously, I'm here to pick one winner, and I'm going to pick the Bengals in this game. Jaguars visit the Rams in L.A. Let's just go Rams in next team, next game. Washington football team over the Las Vegas Raiders, or visiting the Las Vegas Raiders, I should say. Also another little sneaky game. Football teams won three in a row, I believe, four in a row, and they're competing for a wild card spot as well. I believe they currently sit as the seventh seed in the NFC wild card picture. Let me look it up real quick. Um, wild card standings. They currently sit as the seventh seed in the wild card or in the playoff picture in the NFC. Wow, interesting. And then the Raiders. Raiders currently sit on the eighth seed, so they're just barely on the outside looking in. Hence why that Chargers game and that Bengals game, well, I guess the Chargers-Bengals game is so crucial because the Chargers are 6-5, and five, the Raiders are 6-5, and five, the Broncos are 6-5, and five, and then you got the Colts at 6-6. Six and six. So that's really anyone's spot right there. And I'll, I'll go into the, the playoff picture in a little bit, but, oh, man, that is – that's a – Football team is super hot right now. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Ah. I think if this game was in Washington, I think I might lean Washington. But I can't ignore how hot they are. Raiders, I think, have a better team. Especially because Washington doesn't have Chase Young no more. Oh, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Who needs the win more, the football team or the Raiders? Ah, let me look at the NFC wild card again. Well, they need it too. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to pick. Uh, you guys might not like it. You guys aren't going to like it, but I'm going to pick the football team here. I'm probably going to be wrong with this one, but they're super hot right now, and I'd love to see them get back into the playoff picture. I'm probably going to be wrong, and the Rays will probably win, and I won't be surprised. But I'm going to pick the football team. Oh, Ravens, Steelers, please let the you know let the Steelers win. I want the Steelers to win because if the Patriots win on Monday, they will be the number one seed. So I'm going Steelers over the Ravens for obvious reasons. But if I'm trying to be a realistic future predictor. I'm picking the Ravens. But since we're getting closer and closer to the end of the season, we got to look ahead a little bit. Therefore, I'm going to be picking the Steelers to win this game. 49ers visit the Seahawks. Seahawks have fallen off a cliff. Big time. Big time. 49ers all day. It's just Seahawks have nothing going for them. They needed last week's win. Couldn't get it. 3-8. and eight. Just pack it in, guys. Just pack it in. 49ers winning this game in Seattle. Broncos visit the Chiefs on Sunday Night Football. I'm going to lean Kansas City, but there's an argument to be made for Denver, a very small one. I think Kansas City will win this game, but 
Denver has a lot riding on this game too because if they beat the Chiefs, they'll vault back into the playoff picture. They'll have a tiebreaker against the Chiefs. That'll drop the Chiefs down a peg. And then obviously if the Raiders win or the Chargers win, they're going to move up. So there's a lot going on, a lot on the line this week. I didn't think of it beforehand before I started talking about it, but there is a lot on the line this week. And then obviously your Patriots and Bills game. I will save my prediction for Monday's episode, but that is the slate of games for week 13. Let me quickly recap it. I have the Colts over the Texans, the Vikings over the Lions, the Dolphins beating the Giants, Buccaneers over the Falcons, Eagles over the Jets, Cardinals beating the Bears, Bengals defeating the Chargers, Rams over the Jaguars, Washington football team over the Las Vegas Raiders, the Pittsburgh Steelers beating the Baltimore Ravens, 49ers over the Seahawks, Chiefs defeating the Broncos, and I will save my Patriots and Bills prediction for Monday's episode. But that is a little trip around the league. We have on our hands a great slate of games across the NFL. I did not see this coming when I first glanced at it. And I was just like, Colts, Texans, Vikings, Lions, Dolphins, Giants, da-da-da-da-da, Chargers, Bengals, you know, Washington, Raiders. I just don't think of it. And then when you sit down and really explain it and go more deep into detail, then you're like, oh, snap. This game's really important. That game's really important. That game could have an effect on that game. That's one great thing I love about football is you win one game here, you lose the next one, but the other team won two in a row. It's just so much is on the line. But that is going to do it for the football chatter. Make sure you tune in, download, listen, and enjoy episode number 111 as I will be talking about the Patriots-Bills matchup on Monday's episode for Monday Night Football. With that being said, let's jump over to the Bruins and talk about them for a little bit. And quite frankly, got to hydrate. Bruins had a nice win in Nashville, beating the Predators. Really good game there. Jeremy Swayman played his ass off, getting the shutout, stopping 42 shots, resulting in 42 saves. What did I say on Monday? Shoot the puck 35 times, right? Predators did that, and they still got no goals. But if you look at it, and they were like, if they only shot 32, they still wouldn't have had no goals. But hey, if you shot 45 times, you could have got the goals. You, more shots on net, I believe, result in more scoring chances, obviously, which will result in more goals. Predators, uh, Juice, I don't know how to say his name, Juice Saros, 33 shots, 31 saves, resulting in two goals. So the Bruins under the 35-shot threshold that I live and die by, but they were still able to result with two goals, defeating those Nashville Predators. Uh, I almost said Patriots. I almost said Patriots. I do this every time. I do this every time. Bruins move to 12 and 8 on the season as the Predators drop to 12 and 10 and 1. Goals by Brandon Carlo, Jake DeBrusque, who wants out of Boston. I hope we do trade him. I said at the beginning of the offseason. I said this at the beginning of the offseason. Leave him unprotected. Hopefully that the Seattle Kraken will snag him. You get to keep, who do they take? Who did the Kraken take? Who did the Kraken from the Bruins? Oh, perfect. Jeremy Lozon. That's right. I couldn't think of his name. You leave DeBrusque unprotected. You can hopefully kind of mask Jeremy Lozon so they don't, so the Kraken don't draft him in the expansion draft. 
and then you can just kind of move on from him in that contract. I only wanted the Bruins to protect him if they were going to trade him. They did not do so, and now he wants out. What can you get back in return? He still has a what $4 million cap hit, so are you going to get a third-round pick, a fourth-round pick for him? Oh, man, I like Jake DeBrusque early in his career, but he's really grown off of me, and you know, with him announcing that he wants to trade, Bruins kind of have to play him right now because of everything going on with the Providence Bruins, and obviously um, Brad Marchand missing time with his suspension. But once Marchand comes back and you can find a suitor for Jake DeBrus, get his ass out of here. I'm done with him. But the Bruins, they're still just kind of muddling here in the middle as they're currently number the fifth team in the Atlantic Division, 24 points as they sit three points behind the Red Wings, who have 27. Hence why that game against the Red Wings the other day would have been crucial to walk away with those two points. I'm telling you. But we do have the game against the Lightning to look forward to tomorrow as the Bruins host those Tampa Bay Lightning, the two-time defending Stanley Cup champion Tampa Bay Lightning. And that's a crucial game. That is a massive, massive game. This is the last home game before you head out on a West Coast Canadian trip You where you go to Vancouver, you go to Edmonton, you go to Calgary. Actually, the only game in the homestand because you went to Nashville yesterday. But they were home for a little bit. A quick little trip to Nashville, and now you're going to be back home. Sometimes the scheduling makes no sense for both basketball and hockey, but it is what it is. Bruins need to get a win. They need to get a win because you're going to have three good games on the West Coast. I know the Canucks aren't that good, but you got the Oilers and the Calgary Flames. Both are going to be really good games, respectively. Then you come home for the Golden Knights. Then you go back on the road. So getting this little home win right here against a really good team would be absolutely immensely beneficial to where you are in the standings because you are six points behind them. Obviously, you get the two points. If they don't, you move a little bit closer. It's all about points in the in National Hockey League. I've said this countless times and times again. It's all about the points. Bruins are currently played 20 games. They're 12-8, and eight, no overtime losses, no shootout losses, none of that. I've always said 20 to 25 games. Well, we are at 20 games. We are at 20 games. I don't want this team to be a muddling in the middle kind of a team, right? And that's exactly what they're being right now. They're clearly a muddling in the middle team. Now, just because 25 games will come and go doesn't mean they can't go on a hot streak and vault themselves back in. Not saying that. But 20 and 25 games is a good chunk of the season. That is a quarter, roughly, uh, roughly a quarter of the season. You start to figure out what teams are good. You'll be able to figure out what teams are bad. At the beginning of the season, the Sabres started off really hot. Well, now they're 8-12-3, and 12 and 3, right? Panthers started off wicked hot themselves. They're now 16-4-3. They got 35 points, though. They were, like, undefeated for a while. And they've suffered a few losses, but they're still kicking, so we can tell that they're legit after a quarter of the season. Be your Bruins, though? You know, you started off meh, and you're still meh. What what does need what needs to happen? That's what I'm trying to say. What needs to happen for this team? Now, I've sat here and said they need a veteran goaltender. Is that going to fix the problem? Eh, yes and no. What about a defenseman? 
I think that's the biggest outlier right now is you need a top four legitimate defenseman. You have Matt Grizzlick playing with Charlie McAvoy, but is that really enough? I like Matt Grizzlick. I love Matt Grizzlick, actually, but he's not a top two defenseman. He is a top four, but he is, you know, that third or fourth guy. Obviously, you can't just find top four defensemen laying on the street anywhere. But that's where maybe Jake DeBrus comes in. I know the Bruins have been linked to Vander Kane of the San Jose Sharks, but that's a guy that has a lot of baggage off the ice where, you know, just coming off a 21-game suspension for submitting a fake vaccination card, placed on waivers, no one's claimed him, and he's making $7 million per year, which is very expensive. But... As you can see, he's placed through waivers, he passed waivers, no team wants him because of everything that's going on. He's a fantastic player, don't get me wrong. But if you do a DeBrusque for Kane swap where the Sharks eat, say, half of Evander Kane's contract, that's something you can't ignore. You can't ignore talent. You can't ignore talent. Look at Taylor Hall last year. Not that he had baggage, but it was someone that was making a decent amount of money, who's having a really down year. But he's been known to be a great player. I mean, he won the MVP a couple of seasons ago. And the Bruins took a chance on him. And it panned out. In my opinion, Taylor Hall has panned out. You were able to re-sign him. You'll have him for the next handful of seasons. He's a great player for your second line. Could Evander Kane do the same thing for your team? Absolutely. But he needs to get his head on straight. Now, is this something that's going to legitimately come into fruition? I don't know. That's not my decision to make. But it's on the table. You know, Vander Kane will definitely help your offense and not your defense because he is a forward. But hey, if you can put more talent on the forward side of things, then all the power to you because then you can just score more goals and I feel like your defense will be able to kind of figure itself out. You can't win hockey games unless you don't unless you put the puck in the net. You gotta put the puck in the net in order to win games. Everything else I think can fall into place. But the Bruins against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Tomorrow, massive game. Massive, massive game. But with the Bruins at 20 games now, I do want to give them that extra five games to kind of see where they fall into place. Because there's big games coming up against, like I said, the Lightning, the Canucks are a soft team, Oilers, Flames, and then you got the Golden Knights. So you have some really good opponents for your next five games. If they lose them all, well, let's pack it in. If they win them all, let's keep it going with some momentum as you face, you know, the Islanders, Canadians, whatever you go into further into December. But let's just focus on these next five games here, and let's see where the Bruins are. On Monday's episode, depends on how the game goes for the against the Lightning, depends on my stance. But right now, I am a little concerned, and I will admit, I still feel better about the Bruins than I do about the Celtics, and I'll be talking about the Celtics in just a brief few moments. But I am starting to be a little concerned about this Bruins team, and I think you should be as well. And with that being said, let's switch over to the Boston Celtics, where they were able to win against the Philadelphia 76ers, 88-87 to on Wednesday here at the Garden. The Bruins... The Bruins. The Celtics are now in Utah to face the Utah Jazz, where they will have a West Coast road trip where they face the Jazz, the Blazers, the Lakers, the Clippers, and the Suns. And they won't have another home game until December 13th. So they're going to be gone for a little bit. They're going to be gone for a little bit. Five games on the West Coast. All big games. Jazz are good. Blazers are good. Lakers are good. Clippers are good. And obviously the Suns are literally as hot as the sun. 
we are at the start of that big December stretch that I was talking about the past couple of weeks. We're there. We are there. And Celtics, they're playing better. They're currently the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference. Do I feel comfortable where they're at? Sure is a hell of a lot better than I did last week, two weeks ago. They're on a nice little two-game winning streak, but they're only 6-4 and four in their last 10 games. I'd like to see them go on a 8-for-10 or a 9-for-12, 14 out of 17 kind of win streak right there. Because these games coming up are obviously going to be hard games to play. Jazz, Blazers, Lakers, Clippers, Suns are all teams that are playoff caliber teams. Now I know the the Blazers are on the outside looking in right now, but the Suns are won 18 in a row. The Jazz, they're 14 and 7. The Lakers are 12 and 11, albeit, you know, LeBron may not play because of injury, but it is what it is. Clippers right there and the Blazers, they're in the ninth seed. They're right there. So these are all playoff teams you're going against, all on the road. I do feel the Celtics have a really good shot. Let's see, there's five games, right? Yeah, five games. I'll take three wins. I will. I think being able to beat the Lakers will be a big one. Beating the Jazz would be a huge one. I mean, I don't know. Can I, can I say that beating the Suns is a realistic possibility where that win would be crucial? Long term, I don't think it's crucial. It doesn't really matter. But hey, if you can beat the Suns, then that's saying something. Because clearly, in the past 18 games, no one has been able to beat the Suns. And that's on uh, that's on Friday, December 10th at 10 p.m. So, I definitely want to tune in for that game. I haven't watched basketball in probably since Game Three, Game Two of the Celtics playoff series against the Nets. I just can't watch it. Can't watch it. I watch the highlights. Tons of people have come into the shop saying that basketball product is better this year since they're not calling all those dumb fouls. It's just, I don't want to watch one game and have a bad experience with it and then not watch any others because of that one experience. Let, let me, I'll come back to basketball. I will come back to basketball. Just give me a little bit of time here. But that doesn't mean my sports takes aren't still, you know, credible. I still watch the highlights. I'm still deep into you know the reports and st- and doing all my research and such. The Celtics are starting to grow on me. They are, and that's saying something. That that's really saying something. If I'm being honest, that really is saying something. They're 12 and 10 right now. They're 22 games into their season. Obviously, 20 to 25. I kind of want to extend that 25 to 27 just so I can see the Celtics in these five games on the road. And after those five games on the road and their record reflects whatever in five games, then I think we'll be able to truly see what the Celtics team is going to be moving forward. Because I feel like halfway through the road trip, if they're like, you know, one and two or two and one, I don't think that's going to really give you a good good picture of what the Celtics team is long term but after the road trip when they come home and play the Bucks, then you'll be able to see if they're four and one they're three and two one and four whatever it may be you'll be able to tell what kind of Celtics team we're going to have for the remainder of the season because at that point we'll either know that they're a legitimate contender or they're just a pretender and they're going to be muddling on the seven eight nine ten eleven spot for the rest of the season but yes, seriously, big, big games coming up for the Celtics. Like I said, 
They have the Jazz today. They got the Trailblazers tomorrow, December 7th, which is Tuesday. They play the Lakers. Clippers on the 8th, and then Friday the 10th, they're playing the Suns. Ton of games against all good teams. They need to at least win three of them, three out of five, and then they come home Monday, December 13th, to play the Bucks. But yeah, that's going to do for the Celtics chatter. And we now have to talk about your Boston Red Sox. Yes, yes, we do. We do have indeed to talk about the Red Sox. And I will preface, if you've been living under a rock, Major League Baseball and the Players Association has instituted a lockout. So there's technically no baseball right now. But with December 1st being the deadline at 11.59 p.m., there were a handful of moves that were made by your Red Sox. And I will just kind of talk about these moves beforehand, before the lockout was instituted. So obviously, I sat here, bitched, and complained that they signed Michael Walker. Well, they also signed James Paxton and Rich Hill, both left-handed pitchers. Rich Hill's been with the Red Sox before. James Paxton has not. Paxton was really good in Seattle, his first stint. Then he got traded to the Yankees. Then he was like, meh, goes back to Seattle, and I think he was still meh. Let me see. Do we got some stats? 2021 stats. Oh, yeah, he was. Oh, he was injured. That's right. I forgot. He only pitched one game, one like one inning, and he was injured. So he's obviously going to have to bounce back. And if he can bounce back to what he was previously with the Seattle Mariners. Did I say Seahawks? Did I say Seattle Seahawks? Hold on, I got to pause and see if I said the Seattle Seahawks. Give me a second. Okay, no, I just say Seattle. But anyways, if James Paxton can come back and be somewhat the form of he was when he was previously with the uh, Seattle Mariners, then I will take that. Rich Hill has been a really good pitcher for a long time. He's 40 years old, I believe, or roughly. Let me see. How old is how old is he? He is 41 years old, but he's always been someone that has had a really good ERA. Last year, he had a 3.86. His career, 3.80. Let's see. When he was with the Red Sox beforehand in... Nope, not 2014. 2015. Oh, that was a tough year for the Sox. Um, where's the ERA on here? ERA. ERA, here we go. Uh, he had a 1.55 ERA and four games started in 2015. And that's his only time in Boston. Oh, no, 2010 and 11. There we go. Who is calling me? Williamstown, Massachusetts. I am recording a podcast right now. I cannot talk. Let's see. In 2010, he pitched six games and had a zero ERA. In 2011, he pitched nine games, had a zero ERA. In 2012, he pitched 25 games and had a 1.83 ERA. That's obviously when he was younger. And like I said, for his career, he's a 3.80. But generally speaking, he's been fairly good in terms of you know keeping the ball down, keeping the ball inside the park, and getting out of crucial situations. Being 41, we'll kind of see how it goes. But I think this is a nice little signing. You bring in Michael Walker, James Paxton, and Rich Hill. All three of those combined are upgrades over Erod, Martin Perez, and Garrett Richards. I couldn't think of their names for a second. So if I'm picking which group of three pitches I want, I want James Paxton, Rich Hill, and Michael Walker. As much as I don't want Michael Walker, but I'll still take Rich Hill and James Paxton. Obviously, Paxton needs to bounce back. Rich Hill needs to have a really good season. 
But there's only five starting pitching ro- spots in the rotation. You have Sale, Evaldi, Pavetta, Hauk. Am I missing anybody? No, there's four. Who's the fifth one going to be? Is Hauk going to be a starter? Is Pavetta going to be a starter? Those two better be starters. Pavetta and Hauk better be starters. Could Paxton come out of the bullpen while you know when he comes back from injury? Maybe. Would Rich Hill be that fifth guy? Sure. Michael Walker, I would probably assume, would be the long relief. That's just me on the outside looking in with what I have right now. In addition to those signings, the Red Sox also traded for Jackie Bradley Jr., a couple draft uh, draft picks, a couple of prospects, and they gave up Hunter Renfro. I don't mind them moving Hunter Renfro. Rant coming. Rant coming. But you bring back Jackie Bradley Jr. Oh my God. Oh my God. I don't want him. I don't want him. He's a salary dump in this trade. Time Bloom is buying prospects off of the Milwaukee Brewers. He's trading Renfro and he's receiving Jackie Bradley so the money matches. And getting two prospects because Jackie Bradley blows. He's a good defensive center fielder. He's 31 years old, but I honestly think his defense has kind of taken a small step back. Some have even said taken a big step back. Last year, this guy, I love me some Jackie Bradley Jr. Trust me. I was a big fan of Jackie Bradley Jr. for a long time. I loved his defensive prowess. I think he was a really solid hitter for a little bit of time. Fantastic defender. But look at this. Last year, he hit 163. Last year. His career, he's a 230 hitter. 230 hitter. Now, this guy is going to bat ninth in our lineup and play center field. And that's just gonna how that's just how it's gonna have to be. Verdugo will be in left or right. Jaron Duran may be in right. I'd rather have Duran. I'd rather have Duran hitting 163 and get him and his wheels spinning than having Jackie Bradley Jr. Oh, my God. And you still have Kyle Schwarber who can play the outfield, but are you going to want him to play more first base? What are you going to do with Bobby Dahlback when Tristan Cassis comes up? A lot of questions there. But I honestly see the opening day lineup looking like Schwarber in left, Bradley in center, and Verdugo in right. That's not what I want, though. That's not what I want. I'd rather have Duran in center. I would rather have Duran in center field, my personal opinion, because, oh, my God. I've sat I've sat here so many times during the season saying that this team needs to be more consistent in terms of just hitting the ball, getting on base, contact, singles, base hits. This is the opposite of that this is the complete opposite of that and you can tell me that oh Jackie Bradley was an all-star he had a little pop in his bat okay yeah that's a handful of seasons ago he had six home runs last year albeit a shortened season he had seven in 2020 and yeah he had 21 and 19 13 and 18 whatever I'm going too far back at this point his highest hitting season was last year, or two years ago in 2020, where he hit 283, over 191 at-bats. Like I said, COVID-shortened season, but you got to work with what you got. 
You put that over 162-game season, where does that average truly sit? His best 162-game batting average is 267 in 2016. I believe he made the All-Star game that year. Jackie Bradley Jr. is a fantastic, fantastic defensive center fielder. And I'm glad to have him back for his defensive prowess. But do you really need him, though? Do you really need him? Hopefully there's another move to potentially be made. I kind of doubt it. And yeah, this move allows Kike to play more second base than center field, although he was a fantastic center fielder. And I think a lot of people wouldn't mind him in center field. But I know he's also a great second baseman, and I think he's going to play second base to kind of bridge the gap between him and maybe Jeter Downs. Hopefully who we get to see maybe at some point in the 2022 season. That'd be nice. But, oh, my God, I am... Let me talk about the draft picks. Let me talk about the draft picks. Maybe I'll feel better. Maybe you'll feel better about the draft picks. So, in addition to getting Jackie Bradley Jr. for Hunter Renfro, we also get two prospects. What are their names? Uh, David Hamilton and Alex Benalis. I think I'm pronouncing that wrong. But David Hamilton, primarily a shortstop, was picked in the eighth round of the 2019 draft. He split last season between high and double A baseball, batting 258, 341, and 419. Those are his slashes, with eight home runs, 52 stolen bases on 61 tries. 52 stolen bases, let's go. Noting that he has a sound left-handed stroke, he uses his hands well at the plate and consistently barrels balls while showing a good eye for the strike zone. Very promising. Very, very promising. Hamilton, clearly a speed guy. Obviously something the Red Sox significantly lack. They lack speed on the bases. They lack a stolen base threat because when someone gets on, besides Jaron Durant, Jaron Durant is a speed threat on the bases. But with Jackie Bradley Jr. here, I don't know. If Jackie Bradley Jr. is like your fifth outfielder, your fourth, fifth outfielder, and Durant starting in center field, I'll take it. I'll absolutely take it because that'll give you a nice little defensive weapon to throw in late game. That'll also give you a little speed on the bases. It'll also give you a potential left-handed pinch hitter as well, as much as I don't want to believe in that. So if Jackie Bradley Jr. isn't the starting center fielder, I'm okay. I'm okay. Now let's talk about Alex Benalis. He was drafted in the third round over this past summer. He hit 309, 390, and 583 with nine home runs. And he is considered to be a limited defender who will have to hit in order to have big league career. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Hamilton was the Brewers' 16th best prospect and Benalis was the 17th best prospect in the Brewers' system. I could be a little off, but somewhere around there. But hey, I'll absolutely take it. Get that farm system nice and juicy, fluffy, and fat with prospects. I'm all about it because Jackie Bradley Jr. is not going to be here a long time. But these prospects absolutely could be. And if you look at look at it from the other perspective, Hunter Renfro has a couple seasons left of team control. But can you do better? We had 31 home runs. He had 33 doubles. I don't know how many RBIs he had. Let's see. How many RBIs did he have? He had 96 RBIs, hitting 259. But we saw him in the ALCS. He sucked in the playoffs in general. He was a 194 hitter with one RBI. So is Jackie Bradley uh, an upgrade over Hunter Renfro just from face value? Absolutely not. 
but uh, I don't know. I, I, I like the move. I generally like the move. I'm not going to sit here and say this is a bad move, but I do not want Jackie Bradley Jr. starting. Do not start him. Play Jaron Duran, please. All right, now we got the Red Sox moves out of the way. We've talked about the Bruins, Celtics, Red Sox, obviously football at the beginning of the episode. Now let's talk about the lockout. Officially, Major League Baseball is in a lockout with the Players Association. That went into effect on December 2nd at midnight. So we are officially in our second full day into this lockout. And what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, that means there's officially no baseball. And I've talked I talked about it in the last episode what could what could happen, excuse me. But essentially, there's no moves to be made. Players can't be signed, players can't be traded. Only players that can be traded are prospects for prospects. I mentioned this in the last episode, but I'll mention it again. Players in the minor league are not represented by the MLBPA. If you're on the 40-man roster and in the minor leagues, then you are represented because you're on the 40-man roster. For a player in low A who's not on the 40-man roster, you may get traded to another team for another prospect that is not on that team's 40-man roster. Okay, Those are the only moves that we're going to be seen, being seen made. Everything else, free agent signings, trades, um, I guess that's really the only offseason moves that can be made, right? You're not going to see them. 2022 has a legitimate chance of being impacted, whether it's spring tra- shortened spring training or, God forbid, a shortened regular season. There is a letter on MLB.com written by Commissioner of Baseball, Rob Manfred. And I'll read you this. I haven't read this letter, so this is the first time I'm reading this letter. But the letter goes as this. To our fans, I first want to thank you for your continued support of the great game of baseball. This past season, we were reminded how the national pastime can bring us together and restore our hope despite the difficult challenges of a global pandemic. As we began to emerge from one of the darkest periods in our history, our ballparks were filled with fans. The games were filled with excitement, and millions of families felt the joy of watching baseball together. This is why I'm so disappointed about the situation in which our game finds itself today. Despite the league's best efforts to make a deal with the Players Association, we were unable to extend our 26-year-long history of labor peace and come to an agreement with the MLBPA before the current CBA expired. MLBPA stands for Major League Baseball Players Association, CBA stands for Collective Bargaining Agreement. Anyways, therefore, we have been forced to commence a lockout of Major League players effective at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time on December 2nd. I want to explain to you how we got here and why we have to take this action today. Simply put, we believe that an off-season lockout is the best mechanism to protect the 2022 season. We hope that the lockout will jumpstart the negotiations and get us to an agreement that will allow the season to start on time. This defensive lockout was necessary because the Players Association's vision for Major League Baseball would threaten the ability of most teams to be competitive. It's simply not a viable option. From the beginning, the MLBPA has been unwilling to move from their starting position, compromise, or collaborate on solutions. When we began negotiations over a new agreement, the Players Association already had a contract that they wouldn't trade for anything other in sports. Baseball players have no salary cap, 
and are not subject to a maximum length or dollar amount on contracts. In fact, only MLB has guaranteed contracts that run 10 or more years and in excess of $300 million. We have not proposed anything that would change these fundamentals. While we have heard repeatedly that free agency is broken, in the month of November, $1.7 billion was committed to free agents, smashing the prior record by nearly four times that amount. By the end of the offseason, clubs will have committed more money to players than in any offseason in MLB history. We worked hard to find compromise while making the system even better for players by addressing concerns raised by the Players Association. We offered to establish a minimum payroll for all clubs to meet for the first time in baseball history to allow the majority of players to reach free agency earlier through an age-based system that would eliminate any claims of service time manipulation and to increase compensation for all young players, including increases in the minimum salary. When negotiations lacked momentum, we tried to create some by offering to accept the universal designated hitter, to create a new draft system using a lottery similar to other leagues, and to increase the competitive balance tax threshold that affects only a small number of teams. We have had challenges before with respect to making labor agreements and have overcome those challenges every single time during my tenure. Regret regrettably, it appears the Players Association came to the bargaining table with a strategy of confrontation over compromise. They never wavered from collectively the most extreme set of proposals in their history, including significant cuts to the revenue sharing system, a weakening of the competitive balance tax, and shortening the period of time that players play for their teams. All of these changes would make our game less competitive, not more. To be clear, this hard but important step does not necessarily mean games will be canceled. In fact, we are taking this step now because it accelerates the urgency for an agreement with as much runaway as possible to avoid doing damage to the 2022 season. Delaying this process further would only put spring training, opening day, and the rest of the season further at risk. And we cannot allow an expired agreement to again cause an in-season strike and a missed World Series like we experienced in 1994. We all owe you, our fans, better than that. Today is a difficult day for baseball, but as I said all year, there is a path to a fair agreement, and we will find it. I do not doubt the league and the players share a fundamental appreciation for this game and a commitment to its fans. I remain optimistic that both sides will seize the opportunity to work together to grow, protect, and strengthen the game we love. MLB is ready to work around the clock to meet the goal. I urge the Players Association to join us at the table. Signed, Robert D. Manfred, Jr., Commissioner of Baseball. All right, there is a lot, a lot to dissect in this. First of all, I have to preface. I am Team Players Association. I Every league... Every single league, the owners in the league make a ton of money, oftentimes leaving the players with scraps. There was a big thing going on in football. We've seen it in basketball. We've seen it in hockey. All right. I'm team players in this. I have mentioned this before. I hate the arbitration system. I hate the service time manipulation. And I hate the tanking phenomenon that we see in Major League Baseball. So what Rob Manfred has said, he's obviously kind of recapping everything, putting us up to speed. Obviously, he's throwing the Players Association under the table. I would expect a letter from Tony Clark, the president of the Players Association, to come out with a letter himself. I believe he kind of needs to at this point, and if one does come out, I'll definitely react to it. 
come up Monday if it's out before then. But holy smokes, are the Players Association thrown at the table in this letter? Now, there's a lot of great information in this letter, and obviously he's going to be very biased towards the league because Rob Manfred works for the league. Now, I will admit that this lockout needed to happen. This game, in my opinion, I've said this a thousand times, is dying. Now, you can look at the statistics and say that the league thrived this year, but you're also looking at the statistics compared to 2020 during the COVID-shortened season, and you're also looking at people wanting to watch sports because it hasn't been on in so damn long. All right, and 2020 was kind of a joke. So I think 21 statistics in terms of viewership and those ratings are skewed. That is just my humble opinion. But generally speaking, I think this game is dying. Look at the trends over the past decade. It is going down. And I've already covered it. I've already covered it a thousand times. So what what do I really want to kind of discuss? Well, Rob Ranford brings up a good point that there's no salary cap. There's no maximum length or dollar amount to contracts. Obviously, the teams, if they sign these contracts with these players, they got to pay them because every dollar in baseball is guaranteed. Is the only sport that gives you, actually no basketball gives you guaranteed money hockey I think hockey gives you guaranteed money as well so football doesn't give you guaranteed money obviously if you sign a contract you know 35 million dollars guaranteed you know total 70 million dollars all right that, that's besides the point and there's been a ton of free agent spending this year in just the month of November alone of obviously 1.7 billion which is four times more than max that we've seen in previous seasons so Clubs are committing money to players. That is awesome. Good. I want players to get paid. They're the ones performing, not the teams, not the league. It is the players that are performing. Right? That's kind of why I'm a little team player in this debate. Now, one thing I do like, and I hope this is true. Obviously, that's why I want the Players Association to come out with a letter themselves. And I'm just going to read it again. We worked hard to find a compromise while making the system even better for players by addressing concerns raised by the Players Association. We offered to establish a minimum payroll for all clubs to meet for the first time in baseball history. That is essentially the opposite of a salary cap in hockey, basketball, and football. The salary cap, you can't spend more than this dollar amount. Hockey is the only one that has a hard cap. Football has a hard cap, but you can manipulate the money by moving money around in contracts and all that good stuff. Basketball, it's a complete joke. But a salary floor would essentially institute a team having to spend X amount. Say the floor is $50 million. Every team in baseball has to spend $50 million in salary, regardless of how good or how bad they are, whether they're tanking, whether they have to overpay for players, they have to spend $50 million. That's just an example. You see the Tampa Bay Rays years past. I know they just signed Wander Franco to a big deal, but years past, their team salary would be like $20 million. There was uh, when A-Rod was in the prime with the Yankees. A-Rod was making more money per year than the Rays spent on their entire roster. That was a real thing. So obviously a league or a salary floor, excuse me, would institute that every team, no matter if you are a 100-win ball club spending $200 million or if you are a 50-win club, you have to spend $50 million. And I think $50 million would be a good starting point for a floor because – you don't want to like, oh, we're $5 million short. We, oh, we got to overpay somebody. Like, I don't want teams to be forced like that. But I do think that they need to spend an X amount because I hate seeing teams win 50 games and lose 112. Oh, it's so annoying. It is so annoying. Hence why the whole tanking thing 
people teams will just trade off their good players, take in prospects, and just bank on next year. And just repeat the process, repeat the process until they're a winning club. The Astros did it 10 years ago. But, like, the Astros didn't really trade for prospects. They drafted those prospects after years of sucking. They drafted Altuve, Springer, Bregman, and Correa. They drafted all those guys. So they're a little bit different story. To allow the majority of players to reach free agency earlier through an age-based system that would eliminate any claims of service time manipulation. Thank you. Thank you. If Rob Manfred in the league actually want to institute this, thank you. Because this is exactly what I'm saying. I've said this before. I hate the service time manipulation. I hate the arbitration system. The contract renewability part in the player's first three years, I am okay with. Because like I mentioned last episode, you do not know if that player is going to turn out or not. It takes a couple years to find out if a player is actually going to be good, going to be a star, going to be worth that money. You just don't know. So three years is okay. But when you institute an age-based system, that's kind of tricky. Because I did the example of Bobby Dahlbeck, who's 26 years old. He just played his first full season. How is that? uh, 25, I think. Uh, whatever 25 26 how is that going to work out because say that minimum that age threshold is 25 well now he's already passed it so then what you know say you know someone doesn't come up he's 22 obviously 25 he needs to make that real contract that makes sense you know that's three four years come 25 okay you can't you know play the arbitration system no more he has to sign a big league contract because in last episode i literally said Bobby Dahlbeck is not going to see a big league contract until he's 31. I think Duran's not going to see one until he's 30. Wander Franco, if he didn't sign that big extension that he did sign with the Rays, who is he, 19 when he came up, 20 when he came up? Six years later, he'd be 26. He would then see that big league contract at only 26 years old. So it's, I like the idea of having a age-based system, but the kinks would have to work out because not every prospect comes up at the same age. Not everyone hits free agency at the same age. So there might have to be different thresholds. And then I think that will be able to get kind of played with those thresholds where you kind of keep them down at 24, keep them through the minor leagues at 25. And then you bring them up at 26. So he meets that next threshold. If there is another threshold, I think there's way too much kind of wiggle room there. Just if you want to do the contract renewability for three years, that is fine. That is completely fine. But just get rid of arbitration, for the love of God. Increased compensation for all young players. Minor league players make, like, no money. I think they make, like, $30,000 a year, which obviously $30,000 is is a ton of money for a lot of people who doesn't have, that don't have money. So they're appreciative of the $30,000. But for over, they play, like, 100 games, 120 games in the minor leagues, depending on, you know, where you are at, you know, what what level you're at. But, like, AAA, AA, I think they play, like, 120 games or so. You know, $30,000 for those players over 120 games could be worth it. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. But then come the off season, they got to go work another job instead of investing in training in themselves, training and investing in themselves. They have to go work another job to make ends meet. So I do believe there should be a, I mean, there's a minimum. I believe it's 30,000 for minor league players, but if we increase that to like 60, I mean, I think $60,000 is a very livable salary. I mean, I know a ton of people here in America would would, you know, beg for $60,000 a year from a job, especially one that they love doing in baseball. 
So if you jump it from 30 to 60, I think that would make all the – I think that would make the Players Association very happy for their young prospects. A universal DH, I don't believe in. I know – let's see. We tried to create some by offering – oh, we tried to create some momentum by offering to accept the universal designated hitter. I despise the universal designated hitter. I've said before, I love the National League and the game mechanics because they have the pitcher hitting. And when the pitcher hits, it just creates another element of strategy, gameplay. You know, in football, you just have your guys out there, you go play. Hockey, you put your guys out there, you go play. Basketball, you can do a little mix and matching. Defensively, I guess in football, you can kind of do the mix and match. But with baseball, I've given this example a thousand times. You're down two to one, right? Or you're 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 down one nothing. Your pitcher is pitching an absolute gem, but he's coming up in the sixth inning, and there's runners on first and third with two outs. What do you do? Your bullpen sucks, and your pitcher is throwing an absolute gem. Your ace pitcher is throwing an absolute gem. He's given up one hit, one run, no walks, seven strikeouts, sixth inning, one out, first and third. What do you do? What do you do? Do you pinch hit your pitcher and go to your shitty bullpen and possibly lose the game that way? Or do you keep your pitcher in, maybe try to bunt him over, maybe do a safety squeeze, or just have him hit? I just You don't get that in the American League. Yes, you get another pure hitter in the American League who's going to hit 30 home runs or whatever. Or you can give you know, a fielder a day off so he can just DH and just hit. I, I understand it. But National League... Gameplay is so much better than American League gameplay. Because American League gameplay, you can just have your nine guys hit, and that's it. Just worry about the pitching staff. National League, you got to worry about everything. And especially with the 26th player on Major League rosters now, where you can either have an extra pitcher or an extra hitter, it just makes things a little bit more dicey where you have even more to consider. They wanted to create a new draft system using a lottery system similar to other leagues, we see the lottery implemented in the hockey. We see it implemented in basketball. We don't see it implemented in football, which is something that may come around in you know, the next CBA in 10 years. I doubt it, but it would be very interesting. It would be very interesting to see a lottery system in football. But I would love to see a lottery system in baseball because we've seen it in ba- basketball where a team will have the shittiest record or the worst record, I should say, and they'll end up with like the fourth pick. <laughs> we've seen it before right I think the Celtics had the I forget when they had the first pick the year they drafted Tatum but they traded back to the third I think they had the second or third best odds to get the first pick and they were able to get the first pick through the lottery system because yeah the 76ers sucked that year they had the best odds but they lost the lottery and they moved back to three and then they eventually traded with the 76ers to move up, and they drafted Fultz. Celtics drafted Tatum at three. I'd love to see it. Now, I don't want to see it, through, obviously, throughout the whole course of you know baseball. Basketball and hockey, they do it for teams that don't make the playoffs. With baseball expanding to 14 teams in the playoffs, well, I guess if they do, is that a real thing? I don't think that's a real thing yet. But if they were to expand to 14 teams, and then you do 16-team lottery, I don't like that. I wouldn't mind a lottery for the top, like, five teams. No, I guess you're still kind of guaranteed a, a good pick, I guess. Ta, the bottom ten teams, bottom ten teams with the worst records, 
Man, that, that's a tricky one because I like hockey's where – I mean, basketball I think is stupid. If you have the 14th pick going into a lottery, you have like a 0.001% chance of getting the number one pick. So you're walking away with the 14th pick. You'll be lucky if you walk away with the 13th pick. Just to kind of keep it similar so it's, the lottery is not just a complete wild card. But with teams that just absolutely suck year in and year out, banking on that number one overall pick, there needs to be a way to kind of be like, hey, you may suck and only get 50 wins this year. But, hey, you're not guaranteed the number one pick. You might fall all the way back to five. Excuse me. You might fall all the way back to five. So there would be a good that would be a good mechanic to help teams stop freaking tanking. I think the salary floor would also be a way to stop that as well. But, like I said, you just don't want to see teams overpaying a player just to meet that floor. So it's going to be something you got to just dabble with. And then the last thing is they even wanted to increase the competitive balance tax threshold. That affects only a small number of teams. So what that competitive balance tax threshold is, baseball doesn't have a salary cap, but they have a competitive balance tax. I don't. I think the number is 207, 207 million dollars. So if a team spends up to 207 million dollars, it will be untaxed. All right. But if the team spends over 207, say they spend 217 million dollars that year. That 10 extra million is going to get taxed. And it's like for every dollar they spend over the tax, it's like 33 cents extra. So I don't know what that math is. But just picture every $1, you're getting taxed 33 cents. $2.66, $3.99, and so on and so on and so on and so on. So I, and I guess 10 divided by 33%. 10 times 033 is 3.3 million. So, if you spend 217 million dollars in one year, you're paying 3.3 million dollars in just taxes. So, it's just like does it work out for teams? Yeah, because they the ownership has the money to spend. But it's just like uh, and then it gets even worse. If it's like if you spend more than like 225, it goes up to like 66% or some shit like that. I don't know the exact numbers, but like I said, they don't have a salary cap, but they have that tax threshold. So you can spend $500 million if you want. You're just going to get significantly taxed on it, and you're going to have to spend money on the tax. But is it worth it? I mean, if you have all the money, might as well. That's why I want to see a salary cap instead. Make the salary cap $250 million, something outrageous, and just have teams spend up to there if they want to. And I kind of doubt that they will, but then again, they might, especially if it's untaxed, whereas today it is currently taxed. So increasing the competitive balance tax threshold is something that won't necessarily, I don't think, change the state of the game. It will only be able to benefit teams that can afford said players because now if it's bumped up to $250 million, teams are now going to be allowed to spend all the way up to $250 million and have no penalty. But yes, that will introduce more money going to the players because these teams will be able to outbid other teams. So instead of seeing players get signed for $30 million a year, you'll be able to see them get signed for $35, $40 million a year because the teams will financially have the room without having to double down and dip into the tax. All these things that Rob Manfred said in his press letter release, whatever, press release letter, whatever you want to call it, are all great ideas that most of them I've been clamoring for, right? It just needs to be true. Like I said, I'm on the side of the players here because at the end of the day, all these le- all the team owners in the league 
million billionaires, right? Obviously, the money for them is going to be nice because they're in that business. But for the players, on the other hand, the contracts are guaranteed, making more money, being able to make money earlier. That's what needs to happen, among other things. That's why I want to see a statement by the MLBPA to either back up or refute this letter by Rob Manfred. Because if this is the case and the Players Association is on the complete opposite end of whatever Manfred has been saying, then I'm going to have to reevaluate my stance on this and maybe be team league in this situation. I'm not going to know who's actually saying the truth until the Players Association comes out with a statement. But that is Everything that I need to talk about in today's episode, we covered a myriad of things, football, Bruins, Celtics, Red Sox, and of course, Major League Baseball's official lockout. Hopefully it doesn't last long. Like I said, this has need to have happened for a long time. And hopefully once we get to the other side of this lockout, the league will be in a much better spot. The game will be in a much better spot as we head into hopefully an unaltered 2022 season. But you have heard everything that I have had to say about this topic, about all these topics that we talked about, and I want to hear yours. Reach out to me at Murph's Car Town on social media and let me know what you think. Give me your thoughts and opinions about this. If you're listening on YouTube, please make sure you leave your comments down in the comment section below as I'd love to start a discussion with you down there. And if you are listening to this on YouTube, please make sure you like the video if you enjoy today's episode. And also consider hitting that giant red subscribe button if you are new to the channel or have not considered subscribing, as that would be a great way for you to show your support to the channel, as I would greatly, greatly appreciate that. Thank you, everybody, for downloading, listening, and enjoying. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Have a fantastic weekend. The holiday season is in full swing, but I will catch you in the next episode on Monday as we talk Patriots, Bills, Monday Night Football. But between now and then, you guys know that I love you and I will always, always see ya. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.